If you'd like to turn to Nehemiah chapter 3, we're going to continue our series in Nehemiah. But first of all, I want to tell you a short story. In 1972, the country of Bangladesh was born. It was born out of a really a civil war, and there was a lot of destruction um, and damage and killing, and a lot of houses and places were flattened and destroyed. In the middle of it, there was a, a medical Christian doctor called Dr. Vigo Olson. And he was watching all this and thinking, what, what on earth can we do? And the great need was houses, because people's houses had been burnt or destroyed. And he thought, I'm not a builder, I don't know any builders, what could I do? And then he read Nehemiah 3. And God spoke to him. And he realized in the whole of Nehemiah 3 story, which we're going to look at in a minute, there are many, many people mentioned. And between them, they rebuilt the whole walls of Jerusalem in 52 days. But not one of them is a builder. They're priests, they're accountants, they're goldsmiths, they're all sorts of people. And he felt God say to him, you don't need builders if you're doing what I call you to do. And as a result, he gathered a group of people, I haven't been able to find the detail, but they reckon that out of that, over 10,000 houses were built in Bangladesh. Individuals' lives were changed. Communities were affected. The nation was impacted from what appears to be one of the most straightforward passages in the Bible with the least exciting stuff in it. But my prayer is today, God will speak to us through this. I think it's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. I pray he'll speak to us in, and will do remarkable things like he did then. I've titled this, No Ordinary People. So that's my title for today. Let me just recap briefly, chapter two, Daniel preached last week wonderfully about one man, Nehemiah. And he said, he said a number of things, and I really encourage you to, to listen to it if you haven't, or even listen to it again. He said, God will, will use our current situation, not the one we wish for. I thought that was very prophetic. He said, you need to pray, and you need to plan, and you need to pray, and you need to plan, and the two go together. <coughs> He talks about different faith journeys, and he said, what has God put in our hearts for his glory? If you haven't heard it, listen to it. It's great. Chapter 3 is an abrupt change of focus, like a complete switch around, because it tells the story of the building, and Nehemiah is not mentioned once. There is a Nehemiah in here, but it's a different one. We have the story here of over 50 groups of ordinary, relatively ordinary people. And the focus is what God can do through a bunch of ordinary people and how much he values them. Because that's the thing that catches me in this story, that God, the way God values each of us. Just before we read it, I want to recap a bit on walls and gates. Because the bit you will hear often is walls and gates, or sections, or whatever it calls. I haven't mentioned this, but I think it would be just helpful for us to grasp this. Because this passage is for us a, a blueprint, a, a template, an encouragement for what we're doing in this nation and in the nations. So why do walls matter? Well, they matter to Jerusalem, because without a wall, you aren't secure. Without a wall, you're vulnerable to invasion, 
you're vulnerable to thieves coming in every night, uh, the gates were shut, and the wall around the city gave protection, which meant you could plan and do stuff for the future. Because no one does something for the future if it thinks it's going to be wiped out next week by a band of marauding people. So walls give security. They give clarity. It was clear what the boundaries of a walled city were. It was clear who was in and who was out. It was clear who was protected and played a part in the city and who didn't. So walls give clarity. Walls give authority. A walled city stands for something. If you read history in those days, it's the walled cities that had the power, they had the authority because they knew who they were. They knew their identity. And as a result, that gives a place of vision, a place with a sense of a future, a place where things happen. The walls mattered then to, to Zion, the city of God. And equally true, they matter to the new Zion today, us. Walls matter. A church which lacks clear boundaries, that is insecure in its identity, that doesn't know really what it believes, has very little authority and very little vision. In fact, it's seen as quaint, ineffectual, or irrelevant. You only have to watch television to see how churches often portray to see that. Because the view people have of church is that it isn't a walled city. The Beachhead team, one of the first things we've been doing together is we've been talking through, praying through, what are our walls? What makes us different? How do you define Trinity? Because we recognize without that clarity, we're just going to be vain. We're going to have no authority. So that's what we've been doing. And we're going to roll that out at some stage, <laughs> either starting before the summer or actually out of the summer. Cities need gates as well, don't they? If they don't have gates, the whole thing becomes very insular. We all just look after each other, but there's no sense of going out into the world. Cities need gates, which is what we're reading about as well. Our ministries, the way we're going to serve London, are our gates. So be here on Sunday the 30th of June. After the service, we're going to gather together for an hour or so, bring sandwiches, and we're going to start to pray and talk about what's on our hearts, what are our gates, how are we going to serve London? very interesting, there's ten gates mentioned, as you'll hear in a minute. There's two others that aren't mentioned here, but are actually later in Nehemiah, so we assume they were probably fine, in good condition. So the city had twelve gates. Twelve is always God's number for his people, for his complete, restored people. There were twelve tribes. There were twelve apostles. There are twelve gates for Jerusalem. And most exciting, we've had reference to it today, the New Jerusalem. If you read in Revelation chapter 21, it's 12 gates. And it's the place where you and I are going to spend eternity. It's a picture of it. But there's a completeness to what God is restoring in his church. Because this is, this is what this passage is about. This is why we're doing Nehemiah. Because it is a parallel. It is a template about how God is going to restore his church, preparing a bride for his son, and the people he's going to work for. But it's also, I think, a glowing tribute to ordinary people. Very good. 
That's what I love about this passage. It's as though someone said, you took two pages of the telephone directory of Jerusalem. I know there's enough folks, but just come with me. <laughs> two pages of the telephone directory of Jerusalem in 445 BC and placed them in the middle of Scripture. The living, eternal, powerful, life-changing Word of God has got two pages of the Jerusalem telephone directory. Because God cares about ordinary people. And he wanted to name them. They would otherwise be completely unknown. We know nothing about these people in history. They're, they're not important. They're not famous. No history books will tell you about them. But you know, their names have been read in every nation in the world. In every century. Yeah. Their names come up. Which is why in a minute we're going to read this passage. Because God honors them. And I want us to honor them as well. My, um, one of my favorite films, this is going to date me. I don't know how many people will yeah. know this reference. Steve, I'm sure, will. It's, the film... <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> is the film 2001, Space Odyssey? Yeah? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> it has a piece of music at the beginning. It's a trumpet fanfare. If you've seen the film, you will know it. And, and it came round again, the film. It's classic. If you haven't seen it down here, you should go and see it. It has this wonderful piece of trumpet music, and actually it is uh, a piece of real music that I can't call Copeland, called Fanfare for the Common Man. And it's his celebration of how America was made out of the lives of lots of common people. So go and listen to it. I was going to almost play it, but I thought I probably wouldn't have time. But this is God's fanfare for the common man. So I have four willing or semi-willing volunteers that in a minute are going to stand and read. They probably didn't realize quite how difficult the passage was when I gave it to them. And uh, if you're listening on the tape or the podcast, you may or may not hear them reading. So what I suggest you do is get your Bible out and read along. But if we can now read, please, Nehemiah chapter 3. Where is the first person? Nehemiah chapter 3. Then Elijah the high priest rose up to his tablets of priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Canaan. And next to him the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachor, the son of Imri built. The sons of Hasadeah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hecos, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berichia, the son of Meshizabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bela, repaired. And next to them, the Pekanites, repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joada, the son of Pesach, and Meshulam, son of Besoda, repaired the gate of Yeshana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them repaired Metaliah, the Gibbonite, and Jadon, the Methanite, the men of Gibbon and Mispah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them Uzel, the son of Hananah, Goldsmiths repaired them next to Hananiah. One of the perfumers repaired 
and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Repepha, son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem. Next to them, Jediah, son of Harum. And repaired opposite his house, and next to him, Hatush, son of Heshabaniah, repaired Melchiah, son of Harum, Hasub, son of Pehath, Mob, repaired another section, and the Tower of the Albans. Next to him, Shalom, son of Hashuhesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanan, inhabitants of Zenua, repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors and its bolts and its bars and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the Dung Gate. The Dung Gate was repaired by Malkajar, son of Rechad, the leader of the Beth Akarim district. He rebuilt it, set up its doors, and installed its bolts and bars. The Thirteen Gate was repaired by Shalom, son of Korhazeh, the leader of Mizpah, leader of Mizpah district. He rebuilt it, roofed it, set up its doors, and installed its bolts and bars. Then he repaired the wall of the pool of Shiloh, near the King's Garden, and he rebuilt the wall as far as the stairs that descend from the city of David. Next to him was Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, the leader of half the district of Bethesar. He rebuilt the wall from a place across the tombs of David's family, as far as the water reservoir and the house of the warriors. Next to him, repairs were made by a group of Levites, working under the supervision of Rahab, son of Bani. Then came Hashabiah, the leader of the half district of Keilah, who supervised the building of the wall on behalf of his own district. Next down the line were his countrymen, led by Hinoi, son of Henadad, the leader of the other half district of Keilah. Next to them, Ezra, son of Jeshua, the leader of Mizpah, repaired another section of wall across from the ascent to the armory, near the angle in the wall. Next to him was Baruch, son of Zabu, who zealously repaired an additional section from the angle to the door of the house for the Elishim, the high priest. Merimoth, son of Uriah, and grandson of Akapaxod, rebuilt another section of the wall, extending from the door of Elishim's house to the end of the house. Each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Hinnom, prepared 
another section. After him, Michelin, the son of Rarifala, prepared for the sitting's chamber. After him, Malpaya, one of the goldsmiths, prepared as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, opposite the master gate, and to the upper chamber of the wall. And between the upper chamber of the wall and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants Thank you. Let's give them a little applause. There's a lot of building going on, isn't there? <laughs> a lot of people. And actually hidden with this, within this list are some personal stories. So then we're going to go through and pick out some of those stories, because I believe God wants to speak to us for one or more of these stories, to each one of us. Steve said at the beginning of this series, we will all find ourselves somewhere in this story. And we do. And this is a chapter, particularly, where I think we will find ourselves. So we'll start going through. It starts with Elisha, in verse 1, the high priest. He clearly sets the tone by his example, doesn't he? He leads from the front. It's interesting, he doesn't prepare in front of his house. Somebody else does the bit in front of his house. But that, I think, is because he has come here to start with the sheep goat. And the story starts and ends with the sheep gate. And the sheep gate is the gate of sacrifice. It's where the animals came through. So right at the beginning of the end, this is pointing to Jesus. Hidden in the story, there's a reference to how God is going to finally resolve everything. So Elisha, he starts off and sets the tone. And it's interesting, this gate is the only dedicated one. It says they dedicate. And then everything else just flows from that. In verse 2, we read about the people of Jericho coming to help. Jericho's a good one day's walk from Jerusalem. It's uphill. I've done it once. It's very dusty. It's quite hard work. They came somewhere to help. They probably came and stayed. Within the story, there are seven other towns and villages that are mentioned around Jerusalem that people came from to help. Many of them probably just came and went in the day. Many of us are doing a bit of that as well. Aren't we? We're not living here in central London. We're coming in, we're coming to help build from nearby towns and villages. Hard work. But we're in the list. We're building as they were as well. And of course it makes the point we don't build alone as a church. We, we can't do this just on our own. We need help from our wider regions beyond family. We need help from other London churches if we're going to build what God wants to build. We should never be unafraid to ask or to graciously accept help and work with other churches. In verse 4 we meet Meredith, son of Uriah. And again we get some background. If you were to dip into Ezra, Ezra 8.33, you find he's a priest, but effectively I think he's an accountant. Because it says that all the silver and gold and resources that Ezra bought were put into his hands. So he was responsible for looking after everything. He had a very responsible intellectual job. And yet he is here building the wall. We can get romantic about this building walls. This was a pile of stones. This was a lot of rubbish with undergrowth. You know, undergrowth. Growing all over. This, this involved chopping down lots of weeds. This involved carrying big stones. 
This involved chipping the edges of the stones to get them straight again. This involved mixing. This is hard, very physical work. Sometimes building church is like that. Maranoth was not afraid to be ignored. In verse 5, we hear about the men of Tekoa, which is a very interesting contrast here, isn't there? The men of Tekoa get stuck in. In fact, they appear again later on in verse 27. They don't just build their own section. They go and help build somebody else's section. And this is all despite their leader's example. Very interesting, isn't it? It's quite easy sometimes for us to look at our leaders and think, well, if they're not really bothered, why should we bother? No, of course, that's true. <laughs> In work or whatever, there's a tendency to feel that. The men of Tekoa rose above that. They were not limited by the example that they saw. They went and helped somewhere else. But the nobles were a rather different bunch. I think it was um, one of your preachers down there where you talked about uh, turning up in heaven and you go around and ask people where they come from and uh, you're talking to the group and they say, oh, we were nobles in, in the time of, uh, of Israel. Oh, right, what, what town are you from? Ah, oh, we'd rather not go into that. Because <laughs> if you're a noble of Tekoa in heaven, <laughs> this story follows you <laughs> for eternity, doesn't it? <laughs> it's, it's great for all the positive ones, but it's not so good for them. Why, why were they like that? Well, again, the Bible always interprets the Bible. This is what I love. One of the things I love so much about it. And there are two clues. So Tekoa was a very significant place. It had status. If you look in Jeremiah 6, verse 1, it says, it talks about the trumpets being sounded in Tekoa. It, it's, a, it's a significant place in Jerusalem. Maybe they just felt, we're a bit above this, really. We come from Tekoa. Maybe they were just proud. Or alternatively, Tekoa was also known as a place of wisdom. In 2 Samuel 14, 2, Joab sends to get a person from Tekoa, a, a woman of wisdom, for something he wants to do. So Tekoa had a reputation for wisdom. Maybe they just thought, this isn't the way to do this. Maybe they thought Nehemiah's plan, well, I'm not so sure. I've got a better idea. I could be, after all, we come from Tekoa. <laughs> Yeah. Maybe they weren't prepared to submit to something they had doubts about. Which again, which we can fall into. Particularly those who've had experience for years over what God does. We've got to be so careful. We don't fall into that means we judge something else that's coming along. I mean both of these are effectively pride, aren't they? And this is a serious warning. <laughs> what our name will be in eternity. Pride has a huge effect on it. Verse 8, I like it's a special verse for me. It introduces, introduces us to two people, Azil the goldsmith and his friend Hananiah the perfume maker. And there were some other goldsmiths later on in verses 31 32. These are men of influence in the workplace. These are highly skilled. They are, they, 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 they're well off. They're respected in society. Yet they were prepared to shovel dirt mix mortar, cut down weeds, chisel at stone, and everybody else. But what is even more significant is they were prepared to put their whole career and security at risk for the sake of restoring the city. Because they used their hands in their job. And they needed very fine touch 
to be a goldsmith or a You needed very delicate hands. And they're, they're shoveling earth. And they're picking up stones. They are risky. They're, they're, they're taking a decision that is not the best for their careers. So that they can build the city. I think that's how we're called to be. I'm excited about what we are doing as Trinity Church, as part of a significant part of our calling, is to influence the workplace, to send people into schools, universities, workplaces, in the power of the Spirit to make a difference. It's exciting. And this is my point to remind you that work matters is in Wednesday week, and it's rather short of people signing up for here. There's a rather all-round number, to be honest, with Trinity. So go and look on the, it's on the way, it's, we put it on the Trinity WhatsApp and so on. Sign up and come and join us. But the bride comes first. The bride of Jesus Christ comes first. For me and I think for all of us. We're called to be, that's what we're called to be. That's what we sang about. That's what we rejoiced in. That needs to be the first priority. The outwork, the taking as Daniel said last week, ministry out into the world is what we're called to do. But it is the bride. At the end, it's the church which displays the manifold wisdom of God, which demonstrates Christ to the world, which displays his glory, and at the end of history, is his bride. So, although we want to be a church which supports and we will be, encourages, equips all of us to make a difference where we work, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in the nations. We want to be a people also who are fully and enthusiastically committed to being the body of Christ here in London. Devoted, as the original church was, to fellowship, to apostolic preaching, to breaking the bread. That's why it matters that we're here today. That's why Sundays are key. That's why prayer meetings are key. That's why, because that's where we're building something. So I will embarrass my friend Richard and say, where are you meant to be today, Richard? Uh, North Carolina. A bit louder, please. North Carolina. North Carolina. What were you meant to be doing there? Uh, client work stuff. Okay. Quite, quite important client work? Uh, yeah. So why are you here? Because uh, this is more important. Thank you. Very good. We didn't even rehearse. <laughs> it's small decisions actually that matter. It is the small decision to not do something as rich as Chesham, and that's not that small. It's the small decision to get away from work a bit early. It's the small decision to not take promotion that means that we can we can be fully involved in this great program to build the church. We used many years ago, I think, to talk about a church in like a hospital ship. We had to rescue people who were drowning, Couldn't see them saved, and we realised that was a fairly inadequate picture. So we started talking about the church being like a battleship, something far more active, taking the kingdom into situations. But more recently, we thought, yeah, even that's inadequate, and we started talking about the church as being like an aircraft carrier. We had we have a beach anyway. Because the, the, the aircraft carrier is a place that launches out aircraft to actually go and do the business. And they then come back in again, and they refuel, and they rearm, and they re-envisioned, and they're given new orders.
places and they go out against. They take the kingdom, they take the battle out into the world. And I think that's probably a much better picture for us. It's probably still inadequate, but it helps us. And the you know, if the battle's taking place actually on top of the aircraft carrier, you've got something badly wrong. The, the, the ministry and the battle is out there in the world. We want to have, we believe God's calling us to have a big impact. That means a big aircraft. That takes work. That takes sacrifice. We've, we've got to build something big. God wants to build through us something big. And to build and maintain that aircraft carrier is what I believe we're called to do here. Finally, we come to two groups of people who might disqualify themselves. They felt they had no place in this list. Firstly, the insignificant. Verse 12, we have Shannon and his daughters. In verse 30, we have Hanan, the sixth son of Zal. In the Middle East in those days, the status of women was not as it is now or as the Bible would have wanted it to be. The Jewish society was a bit more equal, but it still was not something where women would have felt they had strong status or identity. After all, building walls is man's work. Not according to Shalom's daughters. They're not named because there are probably a number of them, like all the groups are named. But they are there building the wall. Nobody is insignificant because of that group. Equally, Hannah, he's the sixth son. Now, in upper class society in this country, there used to be a tradition the first son would inherit the title. Indeed. We'll get to the fourth in a minute, see? Okay. So the first son was the heir. The second was called the spare, as the backup. But the second would usually go into politics. Okay? So because that was a status. The third would go into the army, because that was a way to make a name and a career. The fourth would go into the church. Because there was some status there. And then they ran out. I mean, the fifth son, there weren't many, but, but there wasn't anything. And the sixth son, imagine having five older brothers. What must life be like? You cannot be any more insignificant, I think, than sixth son. <laughs> but he's here, building, alongside everybody else. No one, no one here today is insignificant. Whatever our background. Because we're all called to be building this work. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, how educated you are, how successful you are, because actually God loves insignificant people. If you've not read 1 Corinthians 1 recently, read it again. God chooses the weak to shame the strong. God chooses what the world sees as foolish to shame the wise. In fact, it goes on, it says, not many of you are wise by human standards, influential, or of noble birth. I've always felt not just fortunate, very fortunate, for God to save me and call me, but doubly fortunate, because not many are called who have a background, not many are called who have a humanities. If you have any of that, and we do, you know, when you compare ourselves to the best people in the world, we have wealth, we have influence, we have so many things, not many. So there are no insignificant people here. And then lastly, there are those who are ashamed. 
Meeting Malkajai in verse 11 is actually a complete surprise. You shouldn't be there. If you go back a bit further back into the book of Ezra, you will find he was one of a number of people who was challenged by Ezra because he had married into, uh, taken a wife from one of the other non-Israelite groups he said they were to do. And he was publicly challenged and told off for that. He's a man who you'd have thought was ashamed. But God in his grace has restored him from what he's done. And he's back in the building. And alongside, in verse 4, is Merinoth. Merinoth is the grandson of Akatos. You don't often hear about grandsons in this list. We've actually mentioned him once a year before. But the point is, his grandfather was a priest, excluded from the priesthood. Because of things to do with his background and what had happened. So there's a family living through shame. And if there's one thing almost worse than feeling ashamed of what you've done is the inheritance you know, I come from the place where nothing good ever happens. My family's got a reputation for never making anything. That was very He carried that. But again, in God's grace, he was called into building the wall. There is nothing you or I have done or been done to you which stops you taking your place this church and playing the part because the cross has dealt with it all and the cross puts us all in the same equal place of glorious rest so no insignificance and no ashamed as we will hear next week we're about a great work we're restoring the church to her full glory and potential as the spotless bride of Christ not on our own but with many others involved with us. The summer of 1982 was the point that changed my life radically in two ways. And, and say back in the decades. The most important way was I met that beautiful lady and started going out with her sitting behind Steve and she bravely consented to be my wife at the end of that. <laughs> and also, and intertwined with that, I had my first vision of Down to my way, and it changed the direction of my life. It has not been easy. But then, 52 days of building stones isn't easy either. Yeah. Been time, and the first week would have been great. But by the time you get to week two, you're beginning to think this is you know, aches, pain, hard work, still got so much to do. Building the church has its moments, <laughs> as, as many of us could say. But it's still glorious. It's still what we're called to. And this story is both a parallel and a, and a continuation for our story. We are doing spiritually what they did practically. Across the nation, the walls of the church generally are not good. They're broken down. There are gaps where error distortion and wrong practices have come in. There are other areas of church life across this nation which are damaged or incomplete or just tarnished. Some of the gates, the ministries the church used to have in society have fallen down and been 
filled the rubbish. This, I believe, is the great call and mission of our generation, to see the Church of Jesus Christ in this nation and the nations restored again to the beauty, glory, and wisdom of God in which it once worked. That's been the call of my life. I pray it becomes the call and mission of yours. It's a glorious one. And there's room for all of us. No one here is insignificant. No one's disqualified by what they've done or been done to do. But let's hold our careers and life pains lightly. Let's seek to support each other and go and help each other building benefits of the war, not just ours. And let us deal radically with pride or independence. And then I believe we will hear God's unfair for the common man over our lives. Wouldn't that be great? Yes. To go out with that trumpet sound echoing in our ears. There is a glory, dignity, and majesty about the Church of Jesus Christ that if it captures our attention, will draw out of us wholehearted devotion that will last a lifetime. I don't want to sing a song, I'm just going to pray for us. So can we stand? And we're going to pray. Just lift out your hands. We've sung about sacrifice, and we meant it. Sacrifice works its way out in relationship, and it saves. Just lift our hands and I'll just say to God, just pray to God what you want to respond to out of this story about no one reading what. Just lift our voices together. Father, thank you. Thank you for this story. Thank you for all the different examples. Thank you for the way you work through so many different people. I just want to give you my life, my lifestyle, vocation, career for your kingdom to know. Father, we want to thank you for the enormous privilege of being called into your purposes that run right back from thousands of years ago through the story of all these ordinary people to today in our hotel in Victoria. Thank you, you're the same God. And we pray as we go into this week that you continue to stir us, speak to us. Give us a passion that your bride was going to be beautiful and spotless. And that this nation is going to see a church which again demonstrates the glory of God, uplifts the poor, transforms workplaces, and has relationships of love that people can only be stagnant. Come do it, please, in Jesus' name.